looking at you, kid. I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real, episode 474. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we are welcoming back Stephen Simpson, co-host of Pop Culture Gamers, to discuss one of the great wizards of movie history, the legendary Ray Harryhausen. But Mr. Simpson, welcome back to Wrong Real. Like since the last time you were here, we've really... Uh, kind of formed a relationship online and I love seeing how you're interacting with all the other wrong real contributors and everything so I feel oh, like good, now yeah. we're welcoming back part of the family thank you very much really appreciate it it's uh, it's quite an honor to be honest I must admit well it's funny how with our, our our Twitter tribe for lack of a better expression every once in a while we stumble upon somebody and the tribe gets a little bit bigger <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and, and, I, and I love it because Obviously, the only thing that it takes to belong to a member of the tribe is an absolutely overwhelming love of cinema. And obviously, with you, it really seems to boil down to a great love of cinema music and movie soundtracks. But if people have not heard your episode about your top five favorite film composers, tell people out there a little bit about yourself. Yes. Yeah, so, I say, been I say, <clears throat> been watching movies for. Can I say now about fifty years, maybe a little bit more, without giving my age away? And it sounds like you're knocking at the door of turning sixty. Then, or maybe you're mid late fifties. No, no, middle-ish, maybe. Yeah, middle-ish. Excellent. I've been. I say I've, I've always loved going to the movies. And movie soundtracks have been a passion, of course, and it was a way to cling on to that film when you come out of the cinema. Because back in the day, we didn't have streaming, we didn't have VCR tapes at then as, as kids. So that was always a passion that sort of held on to my daily, really. And uh, just been, I suppose, going from my teenage years in, into the 80s, I think I was at the cinema probably two times, two or three times a month then, back in those days. And as, as you know, it was an array of films out in that decade. I mean, I'm at the theater a couple times a month now, but mm. I wouldn't say I'm getting a great experience a couple times a month. But I was listening to Bredesen Ellis' podcast recently, and he was talking about being a young moviegoer in the 70s. And he said they totally took it for granted that every weekend there was going to be something worth seeing that was new. And every yeah, month yeah. you were probably going to see a classic. And I'm like, God damn, like when was the last time... I could re rely on seeing like a classic a month year in and year, year out, but that's what that was the reality of being like an eight year old boy and being allowed to go to the theater. And he would just stroll on up to the theater and go watch Phantom of the Paradise and things like that. And it, it was just a very special time to be a movie fan for him. Yeah, and what it's what is great. I don't do it myself because I just can't really afford to at the minute. But my one of my daughters, her her boyfriend have a cinema pass, and they go as many times as they want every day of the week with that and. Great way to to do it if you can if you can, but I don't know if there are enough movies out there that I want to see where I'd want to go no, that frequently. Fight, 
I mean, if I, I looked at- yeah, every weekend there's maybe one or two day and date kind of video on demand releases that at least attract my attention. I don't necessarily finish. Like the other night, I started watching this uh, new Australian um, kind of horror fantasy sci-fi film called Necrotonic. And it was kind of amusing, but after about 30 minutes, I realized I wasn't really going to have anything to say in a review, so I turned it off. So I do try mm-hmm. to check out a lot. Of, and I try to, every Thursday night, go see a new movie in the theater. And if I can get into a press release, I mean, a press screening, great. So I do try to see a few new things in the theater every week, but the, the sad reality is there's just more shows coming out that seem to be grabbing my attention. Yeah, TV has definitely taken over. And uh, it's great that we've got this, this choice now. Whether we've got um, Prime with, with Amazon or we've got Netflix soon to have disney as well when that comes on board as well so yeah plenty to watch yeah absolutely Any, anything that you're following right now that you're particularly enthused about well listening to you the other day i, I think i totally agree I, I switched off from stranger things three after about two episodes in and i'm really disappointed with myself for doing that it's uh it's i really wanted to carry on but it didn't hold my attention yeah. Right now, I can't. The more I think about it, the less I like Stranger Things season three. And I when, I, when I gave a, I say a mixed review where I called out some good and some bad, but I'm starting to realize that all the things that I loved about season one that drew me in are now mm. missing, and now it's just meaningless. Just I don't know. It's just like a self masturbatory, I don't know, nostalgia trip without any drama or without any stakes. Or without any ideas, and a, a, a sci-fi or horror show without any ideas or style or suspense, well, mm. what the hell are we doing? That's it, and I think we got, it's a lean time now, isn't it, until the, until the season kicks back in, I think about September, October, is it, for, for especially for you guys in the States, most of the shows start to drift back in that have been on. Well, Succession starts this Sunday, which I'm really proud about. That season one last year was one of the big surprise uh, shows on HBO that really caught me off guard by, by how much I loved it. It's basically like a, a thinly veiled exploration of what it's like to be one of the Murdochs. And I, I found that to be riveting. It was mean. It was nasty. It was insanely insightful about where our media comes from, what agenda might be driving things, and what would it be like to be essentially part of a a small family running this giant media conglomerate. I I find it absolutely fascinating, so I'm excited about that, but obviously New York Film Festival is right around the corner, so I'll get to see Martin Scorsese, The Irishman, on the opening night, which will be really fun, and then of course we get the big fall movie schedule, so there is a lot of cool shit on the horizon. Yeah, and um, it's it's, it's, for me, it's funny, because I do love the DC universe, and it has been handed dreadfully by by the um, the big hitters in the cinemas now. And the TV shows aren't bad, and I just at the moment they they come to a, a real sort of hit with them. I mean, Arrow unfortunately is going to be finishing after this season, and I think Batwoman's taking its place probably. So now, do you watch the DC shows on the DC Universe app? Things like Swamp Thing, Doom Patrol, Teen- and Titans. I haven't watched Titans yet, which I've been meaning to go to. I mean, I've had, I've heard good things about that. I enjoyed um, so season one. I won't oversell it because it's got plenty of episodes that suck ass. But yeah. it's pretty fun and has a few episodes. Jeff Johns, who's a great comic book writer and you know one of the biggest of the last 20 years, writes the occasional episode. And his episodes tend to be pretty good. And season mm. two is coming back September 6th. So I'll definitely be having a look. Yeah, yeah. I did actually spend a bit of time, even though I can't say too much, I was um, I had the privilege to watch a rough cut uh, for a certain documentary that's coming out in September. Oh, cool! Which is which is the eighties horror in search of darkness. Oh, nice! And oh boy, when that comes out, people that have got that on their Kickstarter are in for a treat. 
Um, even though it's a rough cut, um, they may, I don't know if they'll tweak it a little bit, but there's so much stuff in there, so much good stuff. Beautiful. It was, it was a joy to watch. All right, well, let's switch gears to Ray Harryhausen because this guy, I can't overemphasize just how much sentimental love and affection I have for his late career because when I first started getting even aware of what a movie was at all, he mm. was there in the final stages. When the first time I ever saw any movies on VHS, my uncle lent us a VCR and he lent us, he gave us two tapes. He gave us Robert Altman's Popeye and he gave us Sinbad in the Eye of the Tiger. And so we watched those two movies <laughs> a billion times. We just kept watching because those were the two that we had. And it was just a novelty to be able to just yeah. pop something in and play it. And we just kept watching those two. So I know those two movies <laughs> really, really well. well. That's good. I'm glad you do. We can add yeah. that and, the But then also one of the first movies I ever caught in the theater that I remember, H5, Clash of the Titans, Ray Harryhausen's final feature. So so mm. just the, the, in the earliest stages of my life, some of my earliest memories are of Ray Harryhausen's creations. So they're just seared into my mind in a way that perhaps movies just aren't able to accomplish when you see no. them in your 40s and so on and so forth. But do you remember the first time you saw a Ray Harryhausen movie? I think my memory will probably go back to 1963 with Jason and the Argonauts. That's a good one to start with. And... I think as a kid, I think I remember seeing a lot of them on TV, not the the really old ones. So we'll be talking about going back to his early career, but from about from the sim all the Sinbad movies I remember, and I say Jason is not giving too much away, but it's really really my favourite. It's his favourite too. Yeah, it, it's it really holds close to my heart that one, and I've seen I've seen it a billion times. I, I think it's the best movie made about Greek mythology ever. And while it definitely takes some liberties, like the Hydra was originally one of Hercules' missions, not one of Jason's, mm. but I can forgive the occasional uh, kind of cut and paste the various creatures because they look cool <laughs> when he animates <laughs> them. But it, it, when it comes to Greek mythology on film, Jason and the Argonauts, I think it's – I'd have to think long – actually, I wouldn't have to think that long and hard about it because Greek mythology has been so poorly served by cinema. But what's interesting is – I'm not aware of this with any other filmmaker where the special effects artist is the auteur of the movie, where people say, oh, have you seen this Ray Harryhausen movie? You don't say that with any other special effects artist. And I think it's earned because he was there with the writing, and he was there with the producing, and he was there with the marketing. When it came to the main set pieces of his movies, mm. he really was directing the action. Like when you watch the Medusa sequence in Clash of the Titans, that is a Ray Harryhausen sequence because it's almost all various shots of Medusa creating the, the suspense. So it's But it's an unusual thing where special effects are such a huge part of movies in these days, especially over the last 20 years. But there are a lot of faceless entities. Like you might say, I'm going to go see the latest Pixar movie, and you're, you're well aware that you're seeing thousands of technicians bringing that stuff to life. Yeah, yeah. But no special effects guy since Harryhausen has managed to have that kind of mystique about him. And why do you think that is? It's, I think he's one of a kind with, obviously, he, obviously, we'll, we'll bring this in now, obviously, from, from with when you with Steve of the day. So as a child, he went to see King Kong. Um, and that, that sort of hit a, hit a nerve with him. And I think he was, what, 13 at the time? Mm -hmm. So he started making models in his garage and doing his little films of dinosaurs to recreate what he saw then. Even at the age of three and four, his mum and dad took him to see films like Metropolis. So he was fascinated with, with science fiction and even, say, Greek mythology in a big way. And from there, I think, if we look to today, and I, I don't think a lot of people realise that if it wasn't for Harry, 
we wouldn't have the Terminator. We wouldn't have um, Jurassic Park. A lot of these films, a lot of these directors of today, Joe Dante, Steven Spielberg, um, James Cameron, they all hold a torch for, for Harryhausen in a big way. I think it's one of the best ways to measure the, the strength of a filmmaker is by how many careers they inspire. And when there's this fabulous documentary called Ray Harryhausen Special Effects Titan from 2011. And they just go down this giant list of all these filmmakers who have been inspired by him. But it includes, as you mentioned, James Cameron, Nick Park, Guillermo del Toro, Tim Burton, John Landis, Steven Spielberg, Sam Raimi, Peter Jackson. I mean... Like people, like in, I feel like in the early 70s, there were a lot of American filmmakers who were inspired by Alfred Hitchcock and Orson Welles. But mm. when it comes to like the era of Star Wars to today, the last 42 years of movies, which have been largely effects-driven, it's incredible just how long a shadow Harryhausen, Harryhausen has in terms of his influences uh, just across the... I, I feel like in a lot of ways... We, we can kind of indirectly say that the entire modern era of filmmaking when it comes to sci-fi, fantasy, superheroes, etc. owes this enormous debt of gratitude to what Ray Harryhausen did in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Yes, and I think the word Titan is probably the right word to use about him, to be honest. And it's a great do um, documentary from Arrow, I must admit. I, I've watched it a couple of times. Uh, even when he, what was, what was nice, when he got his honorary Oscar quite a few years ago, and Tom Hanks come on stage to hand it over to him, and he said that Jason of the Argonauts was his favorite movie, and this is what inspired him to be an actor. You know, that's an crazy. unusual choice for Tom Hanks, but I, I love it. <laughs> I, I mean, because I mean, Greek mythology for me is, is very near and dear to my heart. When I was a little kid, and my dad would try to put me to sleep, he would tell me stories. But the problem is he would tell these great stories that would keep me up because he would mm. tell me the origins of his favorite superheroes, like the Green Lantern. Or he'd tell me about Theseus and how like, his father left a shield and a sword under a rock and he had to like, grow up to be strong to move the rock to actually claim his birthright. And he would tell me all these fascinating stories. So long before he even read any Greek mythology, I was familiar with a lot of the tales because of my dad. So thanks, yeah. Dad. But, uh, but it's also, it, it, it kind of hurts my feelings that movies have done such a poor job. But I love the fact that Ray Harryhausen, at least on two occasions, probably made the most two of the most memorable Greek mythology movies, even if they take a lot of liberties with the... Like, everybody loves the Kraken. But sorry, the, Kra yeah. the Kraken's not from Greek mythology. The Kraken's from Norse mythology. But now it's one of those things where people... Like, my, my older brother has a company called Pegasus Publishing, and he was asked about where the name came from. He started describing the myth of Perseus, never realizing that Perseus in the myths never rode the Pegasus. Like, the Pegasus came out of Medusa's uh, body after its head was chopped off. Perseus wore winged sandals that were given to him by, by Hermes. But it's one of those things where Clash of the Titans has become so popular that people now defer to that version of the story as opposed to the original Greek myths. Hey, I, and I didn't even know some of that. Well, you just, what you just come out with now. Nerd alert. It's, 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 it's amazing. I mean, Clash of the Titans is, is obviously his last feature, and uh, a lot of that does stick in my head. But not knowing the true mythological stories behind it he could tweak it and i think everyone would, would just be in awe anyway but you're right it's it's amazing well in the original myth there is a giant sea monster that's about to kill andromeda but i'm embarrassed <clears throat> to admit i can't even remember the name it it's basically a giant whale but has like a like a funky name it almost sounds like like nessie like the Loch Ness monster but the the name's escaping me uh just at this moment so, so there is a big giant creature but he wanted something a little bit more memorable and the name mm. the kraken is just like how do you beat the kraken that's like the coolest fucking name of all time and, and it's funny 
a probably if you said that to anyone now they probably think of pirates of the caribbean <laughs> true that's yeah that's, but, but the, and once again talking about debts of gratitude when they're talking about giant squid monsters or whatever the case may be there's so many fantasy movies that are clearly tipping their hat to some of the harry housing creations of the past, but what's really unusual with Harryhausen is just how small a crew he worked with. His dad, would, who was an engineer, would create the armatures. His mother yeah, would help right. with some of the wardrobe. But he had this tiny little studio, and all of his creatures, he would bake them in his own kitchen stove. Like his daughter talks about how she grew up with all of her food tasting like it was like like, like latex rubber, and she never it, realized yeah. that like all her food tasted like his creations. And so the chicken, the chicken was tasting of rubber. Yeah, but it's like wow! Like when you see these giant studios today, like Industrial Light and Magic, or whatever, with you know, thousands of employees, it's incredible just how distinctive and original and memorable his creations are. Working with what essentially was like a garage band of special effects artists. Oh yeah, that's it, and. I think even now, I think his daughter doesn't mind the smell of the chicken. Probably brings back some great memories. Uh, absolutely, honest. 100%. Well, what we're going to do, we're going to do a bit of, a, of an overview to start, just so people kind of have an idea of kind of where he started, where he got to, and then where, where he ended up. But then what we're going to do is we're going to count down Stephen's top 10 Harry housing creations. And if he wishes to pull multiple monsters from the same movie, that he is well within his rights, because this is Stephen's list. But... More than the movies, people remember the creatures. I think he's got a couple of movies that stand up really well as a movie-going experience. But obviously, when you watch a Harryhausen movie, you're, you're showing up to see the creatures. So I think it's really important to focus on his individual creations and those individual <clears throat> scenes. Because each individual scene just becomes, like, whether it's Talos and Jason and the Argonauts or the Medusa and Clash of the Titans, these just become, they're just seared into your mind in a way that the rest of the movie just is not. But... I will maybe periodically chime in about which movies I think are stronger than because some of his movies I think are are pretty bad. Like the Gulliver Strat was it Three Lives of Gulliver or yeah, whatever. The, that's that, it. That's yeah. the only I'm, one I'm not that even mentioned that one, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> I, I had I had to turn that one off. I, I, it was it was so wholesome and so quaint, and I I, I can't handle I can only handle but so much wholesomeness if it's not mm. coupled with something truly inspiring because a well, lot of the Harryhausen movies are essentially G-rated entertainment. They're really innocent in a lot of ways, and They're sometimes innocent movie, movies don't age very well. Do you think they're more like a B-movie, some of them as well? True, they're absolutely. Not, they're not really top of the tree, are they? Jason and the Argonauts was the first one that wasn't on the bottom half of a double bill. Yeah, yeah. I think I even saw, I got a funny feeling, I remember seeing two of the Sinbad movies as a double bill in the cinema when I was a kid. Nice. Yeah. I, I think I had the Cyclops um, poster on my wall that I remember Riley sitting there looking down at me with his one eye while I'm going to bed, you know, just watching over me. Well, as you mentioned before, he took a lot of inspiration from Willis O'Brien, yet another special effects wizard. And mm. prior to going to work for him on Mighty Joe Young, where Harryhausen helped Willis O'Brien win the Oscar for Best Special Effects, Harryhausen, as you mentioned before, had been playing around, doing a lot of experiments on his own. And he, at the urging of Willis O'Brien, had been taking a lot of classes. But during World War II, he was actually working for Frank Capra. And he also worked uh, briefly for a guy who would make a lot of animated films with puppets. The uh, One of the earliest ones that I was able to hunt down was a short film called Tulip Shall Grove from 1942. But George Powell, because his style was with these little wooden carved puppets, it didn't give Harryhausen the opportunity to really manipulate the shape of the creature so much. It was more just about <laughs> just getting getting your shots in, etc. But it was, a, it was a cool short without a doubt. And in the 40s, he also starts working on these 
kind of nursery rhyme of short films like the story of Little Red Riding Hood from 1949. Yes, that's right. Yeah, which, is just which was a, terrifying it, to watch. It was. A, it was actually it was a favorite of Parks, wasn't it? It was one of his favorites, believe it or not. I believe it, but when you watch it now. Even though it is really innocent and wholesome, Creepy. I think it's unintentionally like the most horrifying short film ever made. Because it's, it's one of the things where, if like, say you're 19 or 20 years old and you've got some mind-altering substances flowing around through your system, like you might run screaming in terror from the room. <laughs> but I, I think that's the strongest of the bunch, or at least it was my favorite of those nursery rhyme uh, short films that he did. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's funny because, I, as I said earlier, I'd, I'd love to watch Mighty Joe Young. But um, I can only get to watch clips of it on YouTube. Well, Mighty Joe Young is actually my least favorite. Not my least favorite. It's it just I just seen King Kong like a few days prior to watching Mighty Joe Young. And, and there's no comparison. And there's there? no comparison. Mighty Joe Young is just such a generic Hollywood story where you know you find this gorilla. Actually, the gorilla grows up as the uh, the best friend and companion of this girl. They take it back to Hollywood. They want to make the two of them stars. The system starts exploiting them. Then they got to save the gorilla and they got to travel back to Africa. And I, but I did enjoy seeing a young Ben Johnson in there, who I, I know him from obviously movies like The Wild Bunch. He's in a lot of John Ford films. But yeah. he's playing a, basically a cowboy who the one line he keeps saying the entire time when they're in Africa, it's like, man, this is an awful pretty place. But it's, <laughs> it's like the one line he gets to say again and again, oh, this is an awful pretty place. In any you event, see, I did, oh, go I ahead. Did put, I, did, I did put him, I wanted to put him in, in my list, even though I put him at number 10 as a, at the bottom there, just because of the fact that after you talking about King Kong, I was looking at some of this and thought, well, there is there is an animation there which has got a lot of feeling to it, even for the for the gorilla itself. Yeah, I mean, and, the animation's gorgeous. It's the screenplay and the scenario that I don't like as much, even though a lot of the crew comes right from King Kong in terms of the writers, producers, directors. It, just, it blows my mind that 16 years after making one of the all-time great Hollywood spectacles, that they would make this movie that feels so predictable and routine by comparison. It feels like a million other Hollywood movies. The only thing in my mind that's redeemable is that if you want to see early Harryhausen animation, because he did like 90% of the animation because Willis O'Brien was basically solving technical problems, so then the actual animation itself would fall on Harryhausen and someone else's shoulders. So the the animation is absolutely 100% stunning, especially one sequence when Mighty Joe Young is being fed booze by all these jerks and he kind of goes on this (laughs) rampage and he's fighting lions and it's totally insane. So the action scenes are worth seeing. I I just, I I find the movie by comparison to King Kong. Yeah, yeah. Well, before we go into that 10 then, do we want to talk about Dynamation? Yeah, absolutely. For people out there who don't know what that is, lay it on us. What is Dynamation? So this was a term of phrase he used for for putting the, the films together with his um, with his creatures. So it starts off with the, the live action shot, which is filmed, and that's then put on a back projection. From there we have we have a re- we have this rear projection screen for that. In front of this we have another camera with a table in the middle with his creatures on there. And then there will be a glass mat screen to black out whichever parts he needs to do as he took each shot one by one. And the more I try to read into how this is done, the more I get confused because it is such an incredible scenario of putting together these shots. You can see why now that when you watch some of these movies, the, 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 the picture degrades because he's, he's recording a recording. 
to get that shot in one piece. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I've got a, a, a piece or a paragraph that I basically copied and pasted from Wikipedia, and I'm perfectly capable of reading it out loud. But it's one thing, I'm not a, a technical wizard, but it's, I guess you do get that one generation removed with the image. So it's why the actors always look slightly grainier than the creature itself. And so they don't seem perfectly 100% to match, but because of the technique, he is able to have them interact in a way where you have little things like a skeleton leaping up and over a dead body after he's killed it because it's you know, it's it's ingenious and it's simple and it's incredibly effective. The only drawback is your camera has to be locked in one place. That's right, and it's there you're doing a frame at a time as well. It must be painstakingly... <laughs> I mean, he just... said if he got 14 or 15 frames done in a day... That was a good That's day. Right. He would sometimes work for months on certain sequences. But yeah, for people to know, like 24 frames equals one second of film. So if you're talking about a five-minute scene where somebody's fighting a hydra or a dragon or a cyclops or whatever, you're talking about months and months and months of man hours where he's just moving. And also, they're not very big. I was surprised by just how small most of his models are but it's just like he's like he's playing with action figures and moving them a, a millimeter at a time and just the patience it must take it blows my mind and how he didn't really bring on assistance until clash of the titans that was a 15 million dollar movie which was his biggest movie to date at that point it was just it was so much work he had to bring on some people to help out but that he yeah, was able right, to yeah. shoot all these but he says he really preferred the isolation of working by himself and even in late interviews in life he was talking about with the option of all these great tools on uh, on computers versus what he did. This is just another way of telling a story and that he would not switch to computers if he had the option. And if you see a, a studio like Leica, which made Coraline and... Uh, um, not made before Christmas, maybe? I'm sorry? Not made before Christmas as well, was uh, that? The, uh, the one before Christmas, I be- you know what? I can't even remember who made I think that was a Disney movie. But but Leica, because the first movie was Coraline, and then even but like... Stop motion still is a role to play. It's just another way of telling stories. Obviously, computers are involved, but Nightmare Before Christmas obviously is one of the most famous examples of uh, of stop motion. And I, I hate the fact that people just assume that because the computers are available that you automatically have to defer to that. I, I love the, the tangible, tactile, 3D, physical nature of his creations. Yeah, so I think if you, if you talk about Nick Park with Wallace and Gromit, Which I that, love. Would never, that would never work as a cartoon. That is claymation at its best, and it always will be. Especially the wrong trousers. Wrong trousers. When I was in college, I would smoke a garbage bag of weed and watch <laughs> and watch that thing and scream like a hyena. It was so goddamn funny. <laughs> this this video store where I work, we'd sell these little Wallace and Gromit box sets of the three shorts on VHS, and I'd never even heard of this shit until I started working there. And then I popped one of them in, and I, I just could not believe how unimaginably entertaining the wrong trousers was. Because uh, we had them, they came out sort of Christmas time for us on BBC. So we'd get like, I think it was three in a row, maybe in three years, the way, the way it worked out. But they were classic, absolutely great. Yeah, I met the guy who voiced Wallace because he was the father of the art director on Hannibal. I know it's a very strange connection, but he visited the set once. And I was like, oh my God, like, you're, you're Wallace. Like, you got to give me some lines. He's like, he's like, the only line I can remember is, more cheese, Gromit. And I was like, all right, well, that's, that's a pretty good one. But still, well, like, that's it. Because <laughs> he... he Back in the day on um, the BBC, he was in Last of the Summer Wine. Okay. And that was one of it, one of the big TV shows of that sitcom era in the 70s that he was in. And I think everyone remembers him for that. 
Well, he was a delightful guy and so, totally sweet, and his son was great as well. But I, I just think it's funny how um, certain actors just can't remember their lines. Like James Earl Jones, when it comes to Darth Vader, says he can never remember. People always ask him to say something in the voice, and he says the only one he can remember is, I have you now. So that's, that's the one he whips out. <laughs> I mean, they, I, I must admit, some of them are getting older now, so you, they're, they're, their brains are a bit pickled in the day, so I yeah, can understand that. We can give him a pass. But getting back to Harry Harryhausen, what's cool is you look at his career – Post Mighty Joe Young, where he, where he really strikes out on his own, you see in the fifties got a ton of sci-fi, a lot of giant monsters, a lot of flying saucers, a lot of just a lot of things that come from either that are deep under the water or from a faraway planet. It's like he it goes all in on sci-fi, and then in the sixties and seventies you have a pivot where he's either doing things that take place a long time ago with dinosaurs or. It's fantasy, it's mythology, and it's interesting how he was drawn to fantasy at a certain point where he just got, I guess he just got tired of doing giant monsters, rampaging through cities, but obviously the 50s was the great giant heyday of the giant monster phenomenon, but yeah, his first movie in the early 50s really got the the monster craze going because without um, the beast from 20,000 Fathoms, you don't have fucking Godzilla the, the, the following year. <laughs> I say there are things better left unsolved. Who knows what waits for us in nature's no man's land? Possible, unbelievable, fantastic, but I tell you it could happen. It could happen. It could happen. It could happen. Yes, it could happen. For various authorities believe that buried somewhere under the polar ice cap, in a state of suspended animation, are the awesome creatures, the leviathans that roamed the earth at the dawn of time. And under certain conditions, a nuclear explosion could free one from his icy tomb. Then, guided by instinct, the beast would come back, back to the caverns of the deepest Atlantic where it was spawned. An armored giant wreaking his prehistoric fury on modern man and his puny machines. Cities would be terrorized by the cruel intruder from the past. Populations crazed and panicked with fear by its destructive force. Granite and steel would crumble. Soldiers and their weapons would be powerless before the onslaught of the beast. The beast. The beast. The beast from 20,000 fathoms. Herald Square, 34th Street, Broadway. Every section of the city is guarded. No one knows where the monster will strike next. Another one, Colonel? No. You know what the radioactive isotope is? No, but if it can be loaded, I can fire it. I'll load it. Just remember one thing. This is the only isotope of its kind, this side of Oak Ridge, so you can't miss. Clearly saw that, were inspired by it, and went off and made their own version. 
that's right. And and the other one which I, have, I haven't got in my list, but I, I would love to, we'd love to talk about it is the the octopus the, so that the, was taken the six, out the sixopus the six of, that was taken out the San Francisco Bridge. I mean that. Did yeah. you see you saw that? Did you have I've um, got to pick this up? Didn't you see that in color, unfortunately? Well, yeah, I'd seen it before in black and white, but on Am- Amazon is this horrible thing where they always seem to have the shittiest version of every movie available. If there's a, an extended version of a movie that's wildly inferior to the theatrical cut, that's the one they're going to have. And with yeah. the Came from Beneath the Sea, there is a color. Because I, mean, I love the stop motion black and white. I think it's gorgeous. I love the colorized, but I like to watch black and white movies. In black and white, and I like, like to watch color movies in color. And something about the black and white tentacles coming up and wrapping themselves around the bridge, just stunningly beautiful stuff. And so sadly on Amazon, it has been colored, and it just looks like pure vomit, and it just made me want to rip my fucking eyes out. But well, Yeah, but famously it only has six tentacles because it was just going to save the money, not having to animate, or uh, time and money, not having to animate eight. So you always kind of see it partially in frame but you never see the entire creature at once because they didn't want to reveal that the octopus is truly a sixtopus maybe because when it's in the water you know they're hanging below so you'd never see them maybe so that that was the way to cheat absolutely i mean he would he would cheat all the time like there's a giant turtle in one million years bc where the the back legs he didn't animate at all they just get dragged through the mud because he was operating on a really short time frame he's like all right fuck it well i'm just not going to animate the the back legs and just the turtle would just crawl around and do its thing yeah, and you're saying about colour and black and white. Actually, if Harry Housen had had his way and he had the budget, he would have done a lot of these in colour. Oh, certainly. But it's one of the things. But, but once it's been once it's been conceived and shot, and once yeah. it's been once my memories have been established as something in black and white. I mean, the Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms. My favorite sequence of the entire movie is this great profile of him taking out a, a lighthouse where you see him. It's this beautiful, gorgeous, high contrast black and white where he's just a silhouette. And it would just look totally different in color. It would ruin the moment. So I, I think the black, the, his special effects are served very well by black and white, given how they chose to shoot those movies. I think so. And Especially Earth versus so, the Flying Saucers. Well, I'm gonna, yeah. I want to talk about that later, but do you know what? You know, when I showed you that, my copy was colorized. Yeah, it, it, had the black, it had the black and white version in there. So I was... Save the day. It's one of the things where if you buy the Blu-ray, they always make all the different versions available, so you're, you're fine. But Amazon has a bad habit of finding the crummiest, least interesting version of the movies and making those exclusively available at the expense of all the other versions, and that that always drives me fucking crazy. Yeah, I did. I think I did notice this morning there was there was uh, it was either twenty thousand fathoms or that that may have had a, both versions on there, black and white and color. Unless I was wrong, but there you go. Yeah, I think his first color movie, if memory serves correctly, would be Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. So that's where he starts making the transition into fantasy as well as into color. He still dabbles with some sci-fi in the sixties with like the the Men in the Moon and things like that. But you can definitely see a pivot at a certain point. But obviously he loved sci-fi because in the early fifties before he really got his career underway he started dabbling, because he, he was a massive fan of H.G. Wells, he started dabbling with the War of the Worlds concept, and he did animate this really stunning animated <clears throat> test, and he even called Orson Welles and tried to get him involved, but he said that uh, Orson Welles never, never returned his, his... What did you think of the the, the footage they showed you? Because that was very interesting. Awe-inspiring. I mean, I was blown away by how fucking cool it was. Mm. And he wanted to do the time machine as well, but unfortunately, he, someone got to it before him. Yeah, the rights is toward the end. We can talk about some of his famous unfinished projects, but getting access to the rights oftentimes was a challenge because a lot of these movies were super low budget. But before we get uh, into your top ten, we should also talk about his friendship with the great Ray Bradbury. Yeah, they were two peas in the pod, weren't they? Yeah, it's like they met at a young age, 
in their teens, and Harryhausen shows Bradbury some of his tests with some dinosaurs, and I think it was Bradbury said, you know what, I think we're going to be best friends for life. <laughs> <laughs> they, I think, I think uh, from what I remember reading, they actually met at a science fiction club. So, Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there weren't a lot of girls there, but at least these two titans of their industry met. Because one thing that's great about Ray Bradbury is that whenever, whatever genre of uh, fiction he was writing, he would just hurl himself into it. When he was doing sci-fi, he tried to make it the best sci-fi of all time. If he was doing a murder story, he tried to make it the best murder story. I loved how he didn't allow himself to be pigeonholed into one style of writing. He just wanted to be a writer, and he wrote about whatever interested him, but accumulated this huge body of work. But through his, I think it was a Saturday Evening Post story that he wrote, they were able to work together on The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Yeah, and uh, that's a cla- I, it's, I, I think it's still a classic in its own right. And um, I, I just do love watching some of those old black and white flicks the way they are. Now, did you notice that? I mean, this is one thing I noticed with all the sci-fi flicks from the 40s and from the 50s. They all have this approach where they use extensive voiceover acting like it really happened, like, it's like almost like you're watching a documentary. And it, it almost sounds like they were written and recorded by like the same guy. But it's like how many sci-fi movies use this hook where it's like you're being invited into kind of like almost like a secret episode of X-Files where they're going to give you like the truth about what really happened. But it must have just been a conceit adopted by a lot of sci-fi flicks. Sci-fi flicks. Oh, I can't even speak. Sci-fi flicks in the 50s where you have this pseudo-documentary feel to them. Yes, and it, from watching, uh, so I'll talk about more later, but where I watched um, Earth versus the Flying Saucers this morning, the first few minutes of that was like this guy talking to you as if you're in a documentary. Absolutely. <laughs> Actually, I quite liked it. It did give it a certain touch. Yeah, I, I dig it. I would have to say I lean toward the mythology when it comes to Harryhausen, but some of these sci-fi creatures are so fucking cool that I'm sure we'll be getting to all of them in a moment. So I think you said your number 10 is the just the, the ape in Mighty Joe Young. So lay it on us. What is your number nine? So before I go to that, I'm going to reverse back. There's something I want to tell you about. Okay, fire away. Now, with with Mighty Joe Young, there was um, a riot in a in a nightclub. And the first scream you hear is stock footage from Fay Ray from King Kong. Nice. And I, I thought that is so paying homage to that movie. That's just that was class, absolutely. Yeah, if you can, if you you will not find a better scream ever than Fay Ray. Her screams from the early '30s are the best screams in Hollywood history. And they don't well, they say they don't age with a per se. But she just gets it right where today some people that do these screams in, in movies, they just holler and it's just ear piercing, absolutely ear piercing. Well, a quick question though, why do you think these? We talked about this a bit with Steve on uh, the one about King Kong. How come stop motion special effects seem to age like wine, where they get increasingly interesting with age? Whereas a lot of CGI, if you watch a movie that's CGI heavy from the late '90s, early 2000s, sometimes mm. you're kind of like. Ugh. Like, like less of that please <laughs> that looks terrible like how come cgi ages so poorly i think firstly we know in our head that there's a green screen there of some kind and they're, they're just looking up acting in in the middle of nowhere in their heads where for some reason with the character and the creature even though they're still not there and they've got a 3d image that sort of brings it to life more even though i look at the t-rex in jurassic park and you we all seem to be astounded by that it hold that but, actually does hold up pretty well i think of the 90s yeah. starship troopers in jurassic park probably had the special effects that i think hold up the best yeah and the rest just sort of fade fade at the wayside they just yeah, like look at the star wars prequels those special effects are unimaginably just 
I don't know, they, they seem like they were done by like a kindergartner on his computer. When you watch Phantom Menace, and you see all those like the droid armies all lined up. It, it's embarrassing. <laughs> it's a, and when you, if you go into some of the special features, and if you watch some of the, the shots of when they're filming it and they're jumping on green boxes and diving and ducking, I just think, no, that's not making a movie. It's just, it's not like, that's not the way to do it. Yeah, I mean, there are certain CGI cartoons like Toy Story where it's aged very well because it all feels like part of the same vision. But a lot of times where, I mean, even something like Two Towers, when they're interacting with Gollum, Gollum hasn't necessarily always uh, aged that well. But something about just the imagination and the tactile nature of, of stop motion where anything is not just stop motion, period. Because say you watch Army of Darkness. There's some mm. stop motion in there with the skeletons that does feel very dated. Like, I don't, I don't know how well this is, this is aging. <laughs> but there's yeah. something about Harry Housen's imagination that does allow his creations to age very well. So number nine, as much as I don't remember too much of this movie, the bit that I do remember from Mysterious Island is the crab. Interesting. All right, yeah. So Mysterious Island. I think a lot of people don't even know this movie exists. So what is Mysterious Island? So this is a Jules Verne's novel where the group of people in the balloon crash land on an island and come, a, come across some erroneous characters of creatures uh, scattered across the island that are trying for survival. And the one character that I just love because it looks so real is the, is the crab. And Because he used a real giant, he used an actual, an well, actual real crab shell for his, the, for his character. Well, that's it, because they, they popped into, if, if you from the UK, you'll know where this is, he popped into Harrods to the fishmongers, bought a crab, took it back, took it back to the site. They killed it humanely, of course, which we're going to say. They actually ate the crab for lunch. Very nice. Fitted the armature into the into the crab, and off you go. And they, they eat the crab in the movie as well. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I I would love. Do you know what? I would love to have thought maybe they should have tried having the crab for real alive and try and use that for filming and see how that well went. they did that in one million years bc where you have some stop motion creations like the dinosaurs but then you also just have like a giant spider and a giant iguana i think where they just take photography of the animals and just use um movie tricks to make it appear much bigger and i much prefer it when he's animating versus just making a a, a normal creature look really large but or even stick Sticking fins onto a iguana to get make it look exactly. Nice. But like with Mysterious Island, we should mention this is one of four movies that he did where the great Bernard Herrmann did the score. And I know that's obviously going to be, have great uh, appeal to you because you're you are the music lover. But we oh, also God, yes. haven't mentioned that it was Charles Schneer who produced pretty much every single Harryhausen movie. Not all of them, but after twenty, uh, the Beast from Twenty, uh, God, the fucking names always. Seem, the Beast from what the hell is the name of the one from the early fifties? <laughs> the the, the Twenty Thousand Fathom one. Uh, boom, 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 boom. What the hell is it? The Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms. After That's that it. was when he became to the attention of Charles Schneer. And apart from One Million Years BC, they worked together in every single movie after yeah. that. But in the late fifties, early sixties, they worked with Bernard Herrmann four times in a row. And I. We'll talk about this now if you like, but I tell you what, when you hear the score start at the beginning of these, especially with with the Sinbad and with Jason the Argonauts, those films just come alive. It's it's it, the orchestra goes straight in bang, and it's it just works so well. And as we know, his scores, even going back to like um, the other stuff in the fifties with uh, Dave the Others do, as you know, it, it, he's a, he's fantastic. One of the all-time greats, but also we should mention that this flick, Mysterious Island, it's a sequel 
to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And that's the reason I was struggling with the the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. There's so many movies using similar sounding names in the 50s when it comes to sci-fi and exploration that they can <laughs> all get kind of jumbled together. But if you are a fan of Captain Nemo, they even tried to get James Mason to uh, come yes, back. Yes, because he did it. Yeah, that's he right. He did it the first time, but they weren't, they weren't able to nail him. But if you are a Captain Nemo buff or fan, Mysterious Island is definitely a re- required viewing. Yes, it, it, I, it holds up pretty well, but it, it, I don't think it went down too well in, in the cinema. It's probably... One of the least that uh, that got got well paid. Well, when it comes to Harryhausen's creatures, the animals that interest me the least are like when it's like a giant chicken or a giant dinosaur. I much prefer his far flung, bizarre, <laughs> either sci fi monsters, like yeah. the Emer, or or something like the like the Medusa. I, I I like it when he creates something that doesn't exist in nature. Whereas Mysterious Island is like it's giant bees, giant chickens, giant crabs. Oh, I guess that giant like octopus thingy and the giant like hermit shell crab at the end is pretty unusual but i I like it when he gets a chance to create something that doesn't exist in in the real world yeah because i think i you put this in the same same sort of basket as honey i shrunk the kids didn't you really pretty much it's 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 much the same yeah i uh, i I, i'm not necessarily the world's biggest fan of mysterious island as a movie but if you want to see uh the giant crab on, on on the loose by all means but i think of the movies that he worked on with bernard herman i definitely wouldn't say i mean jason and the argonauts just stands head head and shoulders god. above uh above the others oh god yeah uh, i mean number eight <clears throat> what i've done with that is it, i've not got much in here but i just i have the image in my head from as a child but the the carly statue that comes to life with like the, the six arms. And oh, the, and hell the, yeah. No, that's one of the, one of the all-time from Golden Voyage to Sinbad in 1973. Yes. Vizier, the death fight of the centaur on the griffin, the six-armed goddess of evil. The flying homunculus. siren on a rampage. The duel with the vanishing sorcerer. (laughs) The one-eyed centaur. The Oracle 
capital of all knowledge. The fountain of destiny. is imprinted in my brain for whatever reason it may look a bit shoddy to be honest with the way it's it's stop motion works i suppose as a statue too it will probably be like that compared to some others where they're more fluid and the fight sequence is pretty cool to be honest yeah well you have a six-armed statue with a sword in each hand it's what inspired general grievous and revenge it was yeah yeah but i i I love the 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 kylie statue and obviously this movie I mean, the best special effect of all in the Golden Voyage of Sinbad wasn't even Harry Housen's doing. It was actually the young Caroline Monroe who pops up in this movie, <laughs> who people will remember as the brunette in The Spy Who Loved Me, one who like the helicopter pilot working for the villain. Yeah, she didn't last long there. Yeah, and she also did Star Crasher, but easily one of the most beautiful girls of the 1970s by far. And most of the se- her scenes in this movie, d- d- like basically, she's always got her her tits exposed not exposed but they're, they're, they're busted out aren't they I think yeah a lot, lot of a lot of sweaty cleavage with her kind of gasping in horror and like her her ribs kind of heaving and sighing so they definitely knew what they had on their hands so it's a lot of situations where she's reacting in terror to these various creatures but that fucking statue and it comes to life and it gets, whips out six blades in each hand and starts throwing down with sinbad and his men i think it's the best scene of the movie by far oh god yeah absolutely i think so and uh I like the way that it's in a dark atmosphere as well because I think it would probably wouldn't look as good if it was in a light lit room. And uh, yeah, I love it. It's really good. Yeah, now it stars John Philip Law, who was obviously the main character in uh, Danger Diabolics. If you're a John Philip Law fan, it's a chance to see him play Sinbad. This one, I think, is the most obscure of the three Sinbad movies. My but, least favorite, probably, to be honest. But it's also got a really cool wooden figurehead from the front of a ship that comes to life at one point to fight them. Which I, I really enjoyed that figurehead sequence. You have a, a Cyclops centaur in here, which is an interesting combination of his earlier Cyclops with this with this new one, which ends up fighting a Griffin at one point. So that's I always like it when you have a battle scene where he gets to animate two different creatures. Like a lot of his battle scenes are a creature versus six or seven guys, and it kills off a few, and eventually they find a way to kill it. But it's yeah. cool when you see Harryhausen just really cut loose and just have two monsters throw down. Yeah, you see, I mean, we saw that in King Kong, didn't we, as well, with the, with the Tyrannosaurus Rex. Hell yeah. And, and, and uh, I, 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 that's wicked. And again, a bit later, we'll see that with, with the Cyclops, which we'll talk about later on. But um, yeah, it's and really... As an Orson Welles buff, uh, sadly, Orson Welles, who was initially cast as the Oracle in this, but his agent asked for an extremely high fee for just three days of work. So Robert Shaw, who was on vacation, came in, did the work in a couple hours, and Orson Welles, sadly, missed out on the payday. Yeah, real shame. <laughs> so number seven, I've got the Flying Saucers from Earth versus the Flying gotcha. Saucers. All right, go, let's, go, let's go sci-fi. Since biblical times, man has witnessed and recorded strange manifestations in the sky and speculated on the possibilities of visitors from another world. Today, from 
from the skies of California, the fields of Kansas, the rice paddies of the Orient, the air lanes of the world, come persistent reports of UFOs, unidentified flying objects which we have come to know as flying saucers. In Dayton, Ohio, the Air Intelligence Command gathers and sifts data from all quarters of the globe. Ninety-seven percent of the objects prove on investigation to be of natural origin, but three percent still are listed as unknown. The Air Force is aware of the widely held belief that some of these could be flying saucers from another planet. While there is nothing conclusive in the evidence, the probing and digesting of information about UFOs continues unceasingly. As a result, headquarters of the Hemispheric Defense Command in Colorado Springs issued an order. All military installations are to fire on sight at any flying objects not identifiable. But even as they did so, the military wondered whether their scientific know-how and their best weapons would be effective in any battle of the Earth versus the flying saucers. So, did you get to watch the whole movie? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was, it was the first time I'd ever seen it. I've been seeing clips my entire life. This is the first time I've sat down and watched this bona fide sci-fi classic. And what I love about this movie is I was watching an interview with Tim Burton, chatting to Ray Harryhausen about it, and his influence by having Mars attacks. When I see it now and I realize how that sticks out, and um, yeah, it's paying per- homage per- to Perfect double feature of those two movies combined. Oh, God, yeah. And... There's a few things I liked about this. Now, the sound of the sources was conceived by recording water going sort of high speed through pipes. Interesting. uh, Which I thought, that was pretty cool. And the sources, I think, were very clever because he had notches around the the top and the bottom. He had the nodules, three of them, which were actually the way to hold the wires, to hold the sources in position. And the notches were... Were, were more than just a look because they were a way of watching out how he did each turn of the saucer to remember where he sat them in the position to do the recording. Interesting. One thing they bring up in the documentary about him, which I, I thought was really interesting, is how somehow, in spite of the fact that these things can't really be animated apart from just rotating and flying, Harryhausen, through his camera angles, finds a way to inject personality into something that shouldn't have any personality of any kind. Like there's nothing with less personality than just a, a sphere-like object kind of f- uh, flying flying through the air. But somehow he manages to imbue them with all this personality and menace. And it's once again no camera movements of any kind. But through the magic of editing, they just unleash these fucking flying saucers. And you have like giant battle sequences with jets and people shooting rockets at them. It's completely bananas. And I think this one, this is definitely one of the one of the strong. If you like, want to see just a giant Armageddon level, like extinction level event with Earth quite literally versus the flying saucers, this is the holy grail on it, that it, front. It, it comes to me on the list of, of sci-fi B movies to watch. Whether you're watching something like the giant ants with them, which is a particular favorite of mine, or, or, or these, they 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 just still hold up. And I know we could probably laugh at the um, the aliens in this because they look a bit bit wooden, to say the least. But other than that, I, I, it's just a very well-put-together movie. Obviously, the, I can't remember the guy's name. The, the main character that was doing the project, 
He also was in um, in the other movie with uh, the score for Bernard Herrmann with um, Dave Issa still. Well, it's it, a lot of these sci-fi flicks that he did in the 50s used the same cast. Like you've got Joan Taylor here who was quote-unquote, almost a doctor in 20 yeah. Million Miles to Earth. You've got John Zaremba, who's a scientist in both films. Thomas Brown Henry plays a general in both. Um, <laughs> Donald Curtis plays a scientist, and it came from beneath the sea, and a military man here. So from the early 50s through the late 50s, uh, a lot of the same actors pop up again and again in these Charles yeah. Schneer, Ray Harry Harrelson films. And there was one There was one actor in this I noticed, and I only recognized his voice, but he had hair then, was the guy that, was, that invented the way to kill the, the saucers. He was a technician in the TV show The Time Tunnel. Oh, interesting. Gotcha. And uh, he's got hair there where he didn't have hair in that. Because obviously there's a quite a bit of a distance in time-wise between those two sets of, of, from the movie to the TV show. Uh, the one other thing I'd like to say about, about the, um, the sources is that I can't believe, after listening how this was put together, the crashing of the sources in the monument where you see all the brick and it will fall apart. Each brick, every little piece of that was on wires. And it had to be animated a frame at a time. He stopped, exactly. he stopped doing buildings at a certain point because it was so <laughs> tedious and so yeah. work-intensive. But in the 50s, his monsters would tear down buildings and he had to animate the rubble, which is just an unimaginable, ungodly amount of work. Can you but, imagine there might have been seven or eight wires at one point, and he's actually got to move each item before he takes that shot, remember which one he's moved and what position it's been in. It's, it's mind-blowing, absolutely mind-blowing. I mean, you've got to really love your final product. <laughs> you're really well, today you've got the idea, you've got, you got, you got a digital camera that can probably take and remind you where you got to. He, I mean, he would sit there at night, if he'd eaten his food, he will, if he answers a phone call, he'd Eating be screwed rubber because he'd forget chicken. where he was. Yeah, yeah no, that's it. <laughs> yeah, imagine he had some. He must have really loved solitude and peace and quiet and just long, hard hours of work. And there are people like that where they just have this monastic existence where they live for their craft. They wake up, they drink their tea, they read the newspaper, and then they just hang out in their studio the rest of the day until they can't keep their eyes open. And they wake up and do it again the next day. But when I heard about how he was animating the rubble, at least eventually he realized, all right. Fuck the rubble! No more sci-fi monster movies. I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna do mythological monsters running around in temples and castles and that sort of thing because I don't have to worry about them knocking everything over. Yeah, and then again, he, I suppose he got more. His ha he was hands-on with everything anyway. But being out there um, on set as well for him, it must have been a joy to do. Some of the, especially some of the creatures that he had to guide the actors to where to look and how to how to react to something that isn't there yet. Yeah, the choreography, and also they said a big challenge is with actors, if you tell them which direction to look, sometimes they will look and basically too far into the distance. It's a big challenge for an actor to basically look in a direction, but act like they're seeing something 20 feet away as opposed to 200 feet away. So trying yeah. to basically give them a frame of reference, that would essentially be the eyes of the creature they're encountering and really having them focus on the eyes. And that way it would all kind of come together. It's just, yeah, the choreography is absolutely remarkable. And once again, going back to the Golden Void to Sinbad, when you see a creature with six arms having a fight with several guys at once, because the, the, once, you, once you shoot your original footage with the, the actors, you have to work with what you got. But the big mm. thing is, because these movies were low budget, Ray Harryhausen never got to do a second pass at these scenes. The scenes that you see with his special effects in his movies, it's the first pass. He would work on it for a couple of weeks, and that was it. And it was one and done, and you're moving on to the next setup. And where that probably holds up better, because there's... 
if you keep tweaking something that you're not happy with, you might lose that that first shot that would have been perfect. You could probably he could probably point out the flaws, but I do like the fact that what you're seeing is his basically the best version he can give you under the circumstances. But as they say with movies, you never really finish them; you just abandon them. You run out of time, you run out of money. So he was really good about staying within his uh, his time constraints. And as we said before, I mean, most of these movies were relatively low budget movies on the bottom half of a double bill. But I feel like when it comes to those kind of movies, Earth versus the Flying Saucers, it has so many iconic shots that I've seen used in so many documentaries and so many other movies. I, I, I've known these shots for decades, so it was a joy to finally actually. Put kind of put the shots in the proper context by seeing the movie. In, yeah, in, yeah, in and, I, and I'm really glad that I picked up the Blu-ray on that. I'm really chuffed that I did, didn't watch it digitally because I will watch that again. Hundred no percent, absolutely. Mm. All right, well, okay. Number, number six, what no, do you got? Number six. So I've got the Cyclops from the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. This is Dynamation. This is Dynamation. This is Dynamation. This is Dynamation. Dynamation will be brought to the screen for the first time in color with the release of Columbia Pictures' The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. Dynamation is a new process which utilizes new technical and scientific advances in electronics and color to open up vast new vistas in motion picture entertainment. Some of this demonstration film is being projected in color, some in black and white. But the feature picture itself is entirely in color. Anything the mind can conceive can now be brought to the screen. As for example, this scene from the seventh voyage of Sinbad, in which the Princess Parisa, played by Catherine Grant, is reduced to doll size by the magician Sokura. The outflung arm of the sleeping princess actually shrinks before your eyes. This effect was achieved by taking the camera back slowly for 40 feet. To prevent the slightest movement of the arm, Catherine Grant was tied to a stake remaining motionless and scarcely even breathing. The pillow on which the princess sleeps while the magician is shrinking her was 25 feet high and 40 feet wide. It occupied one full corner of a soundstage in Madrid, Spain, where most of the picture was filmed. The princess, originally life-size, was reduced by shooting from 70 feet away. Finally, the various components of the sequence were put together in the Technicolor optical printer in London. In Dynamation, producer Charles Schneer and special effects expert Ray Harryhausen have combined animation, normal human action, and trick photo effects in color. Principal actors like Kerwin Matthews, who plays Sinbad, Catherine Grant, Richard Eyre, the genie of the magic lamp, and Torin Thatcher, the magician, are used in combination with three-dimensional figurines. The process has been years on the drawing boards and in actual testing with color film. In the seventh voyage of Sinbad, you will see the two-headed rock of the Arabian Nights' Tales, a bird with the wing spread of a jet airliner. You will see it attack a shipload of sailors and carry Sinbad away in its talons. You will see a fight to a finish between a 50-foot cyclops and a 100-foot dragon. You will see an astonishing sword fight between Sinbad and a skeleton which comes to life at the magician's bidding. Every movement in this sequence was carefully plotted in advance with precise markings for Sinbad and for insertion of the skeleton. Matthews, playing Sinbad, was coached by Italian Olympic fencing coach Enzo Greco in endless rehearsals, during which the fencing master stood in for the skeleton. Later, the actor had to pantomime his every move without his opponent. 
Then the skeleton was inserted via dynamation to match the movements of the fencing instructor. The seventh voyage of Sinbad is the eighth wonder of the screen. I actually watched this all over again, and I've got to say it's my favourite Sinbad movie. So you might not agree with me. You might have a favourite with Eye of the Tiger, possibly. Well, it's I saw Seventh Voyage of Sinbad as an adult, and I saw Eye of the Tiger as like a, a toddler a, a million times. So I, I can't even really compare the two. Oh, really? Yeah. I just I sat down there a few nights ago and watched it, and I. I felt like a kid again sitting there watching this movie. Well, especially the Cyclops sequence, with the two Cyclops sequences where it's it's easily... I might even place him a little higher in the top ten if I were creating my own list, but one of his most visually distinctive creations he ever came up with. And the big thing was that they wanted to make sure that people didn't think it was a guy in a suit, so they gave him these great like kind of horse hoof legs or goat legs. He's yeah. so remarkable. He's got this big-ass horn coming out of his forehead. But one thing we mentioned earlier about Dynamation, the reason they called all these movies Dynamation, they were worried in the 50s about an anti-animation bias in adults where even then in the 50s, adults thought that animation was for kids. So if they called it stop motion animation, they were worried people would stay home. So they had to come up with other slogans to pitch these concepts. It's, it's like the idea of Technicolor and the way that comes out on the screen, isn't it? And stuff like that. They tried yeah. to oversell it a bit more. But yeah, the director of this movie, Nathan Juren, he also did 20 Million Miles to Earth. He was he was a, a, a good frequent collaborator of Harryhausen. And man, yeah, I, I fucking uh, I love this creature. Uh, I, I love everything it's, about it. It's, I feel like you see this one on Twitter on any given day. People are constantly posting images of this thing. Yeah, and it's funny because I re- I always remember that him catching catching one of the uh, the um, the group and putting him on the spit and sitting there with it wheeling it round while you got the fire going. It's just <laughs> it's crazy. Well, also we see with this movie of uh, the beginning of a phenomenon where Harryhausen would sometimes do a creature that was kind of a first pass and then we'd see a variation on it or an improvement upon it in later movies like with seventh voyage of sinbad at the end sinbad fights a skeleton and it's killer but then you flash forward a couple of years jason versus the, jason and the argonauts they're fighting seven skeletons so he's he's taking what he's already done and building upon it or with like the creature the, the emer from 20 million miles to earth it basically is the Kraken. Admittedly, the Kraken yeah, has yeah. a fish body, whereas the Emer is walking on a, on two legs. And obviously, the Kraken has forearms instead of the two. But in terms of their face and their overall look, very similar. And also, but going, getting back to Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, we have a handmaiden who's turned into a snake creature with four tentacle arms. And obviously, that's a first pass of what would later become the Medusa. So it's just, yes, it, yeah. or, or you could even say the Kraken because the Kraken has that snake-like body with the four arms. So I like how he's got certain prototypes and then he'll say, all right, well, I did that once. Let's do it way better a couple of years later. Yeah. And it's funny that what he did a lot of sometimes, I don't think we, we might really realize this, but he did cannibalize a lot of his creatures. And unfortunately the Cyclops today is a little bit poorly because it's a, all you've got is a lot of armature and it had one hoof. And the foundation actually got someone to put another foot on it to give it a bit of stability. And it's in the collection still today. It was like when he was making these things, he didn't know he was going to become a legend. So he was designing <laughs> them to be animated under the circumstances. But, yeah, but yeah. a couple of decades later, a lot of his creations have totally disintegrated. Like the original King Kong, he's a fucking mess. Like he, he, <laughs> he, 
I was listening to one of the podcasts. I didn't make a note of this, but I just remembered it. The in Clash of Titans, is it the Calboss character? Which oh, yeah, is yeah, the, Calibus, yep. His hoof was the Cyclops. Yep, absolutely. That's actually his, isn't he? He borrowed it. My, my only real knock against Seventh Void to Sinbad is the little fucking kid playing the genie. I just want to punch him in the face every time he talks. I, I really do enjoy this movie, and I feel like it's his warm-up for Jason and the Argonauts, which I agree is his masterpiece. Yeah. But man, this the kid, every time they talk to the genie, he's like, no! He's, he was so wholesome you could throw up. Yeah, exactly. I, I can handle It's a weird thing where I can watch a John Ford movie that employs a certain level of like wholesome flavor because usually yeah. it's coupled with some unimaginable horror. Maybe like The Searchers where you have you know a family ranch being ransacked by the Comanche or whatever the case may be. So yeah. there's a darkness underneath it that helps me where it feels coupled with something. But I can't handle old-fashioned kind of quaint disney family-friendly live action stuff in the, the 50s cute, and 60s the cuteness that they put into these movies sometimes would be so gut churning you would want to just throw up absolutely it's just and i maybe it's just the way they were made and the way they come across it's like thinking of the waltons probably which <laughs> maybe i don't want to put this into a scenario but you know it's too much you just don't want that you just oh awful well I think what I mean, what helps me overlook how wholesome these movies can be is just how unbridled the imagination is. And I agree. The Cyclops, he's got so much personality. And we should talk a little bit about how Harry Housen was not an actor, but he kind of was because he would act through his creations. And you have to have an incredible sense of performance. Like Nick Park talks a lot about how he'll stand in front of the mirror and do a pose and kind of act out for himself. And then mm. he'll whip out his characters and start putting them into shape. Harry Housen deserves some credit as an actor because and I think I feel like this is really useful for screenwriters, special effects artists, whatever the case may be, but taking a few acting classes, doing a few plays, whatever the case may be, it'll, it allows you to introduce a certain level of performance into your, or even if you're a novelist, I feel like having a, a little sense of what performance is all about is hugely beneficial. And all of his characters, the little details are so special. Like the best is like with the Emer and 20 million miles to earth when they first shine a light on it and he kind of rubs his eyes with his hands. The physical performances of his creatures are remarkable. I think that's what's missing with a lot of these CGI special effects movies today is you don't get a sense of performance in the creations. Because they're so well crafted in C in, in digitally. They haven't got any life to them. They're just a, yeah, just an image on a screen. Pixels, aren't they? They're pixels on a screen and not, not, an, not an actor. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a shame we. I mean, it's a shame we've gone the way we have. I suppose it's a progression of, of technology now, but it'd be nice to see if someone could come up with a movie and go back to those old, old ways of doing it. I mean, the the Leica Studio tries, but ever since Coraline, each movie's made a little bit less money than uh, than the last, like Kubo and the Two Strings. I thought was really cool, but it didn't do well. The most yeah. recent one, I can't even remember the name. That did even poor, poor, but for whatever reason, Coraline was a hit. And they've made like four or five movies since then, and every single one, they just get these diminishing returns. So I love and adore stop motion, but for whatever reason, the audience just doesn't seem to to be there for it. No, they, if they make them for the kids more, I mean, I think Caroline's probably a bit more of a darker story for older kids, but for small kids, I think, what was that one? Was it Island, Island, Island Dogs, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, hell yeah. That's a, that's a good outlier. I, I really enjoyed that and Fantastic Mr. Fox, probably two of the best stop motion of the 20th century, yeah. 21st century. 
Yeah, they were. You were. So, uh, so yeah. So we still seeing that that craft being done today, but I don't think maybe mainstream audiences don't appreciate it. Maybe I don't know. What would be cool is if some maniac like Guillermo del Toro or Neil Gaiman or Wes Anderson or whomever decided to do a stop motion monster movie where you don't do it on a two hundred million dollar budget because the audience just isn't there for it, but you do like a twenty million dollar experiment <clears throat> of just doing a Ray Harryhausen type stop motion film and it could be completely stop motion like no human actors of any kind it'd be mm. really cool to see what they could come up with i don't think wes anderson's probably that interested in giant monsters but we know for a fact guillermo del toro is obsessed <laughs> with giant monsters <laughs> so it'd be really cool to see what he would cook up yeah yeah no that would be that'd be pretty interesting um <clears throat> number five now i wanted to put these in here i mean it's difficult to put a list together and where the cyclops you rightly said could be much higher in the list um, I, even juggling it around I, for number five I've put Pegasus and Bubo from Clash of the Titans Okay, interesting. Gotcha. And, now, and those were and those are two of the big standouts where he had a, a lot of assistance. That was specifically right. for those two creations where he brought in extra help. Yes, and obviously that that I say that was what fifteen million dollars that film took or took to make, should we say? And I just love the performance that the Pegasus, the Pegasus gives in in it. When you watch that and some of the shots, even at night with the silhouette of it, it just looks gorgeous, and it's. Say we don't see too many Pegasus in the movies these days, and it I just it's just a joy to look at that and how that we have one in Avengers Endgame when uh, Valkyrie she shows oh, up yeah, on Pegasus yeah, for did. the final battle. So yeah, in, in the comics, all the Valkyrie ride Pegasus or Pegasi, I guess if you're talking about the plural. So but yeah, there's a great tip of the hat to uh, the, the the comics there when she showed up on that thing. Yeah, and with Clash of the Titans, I think I think Pegasus was probably the standout character. Bubo is I. I wouldn't like to say this, but would Bubo be the Jar Jar Binks? But I, I, I well, might be poorly shot down. If you were to be kind, it. it was an attempt to cash in on the popularity of R two D two because then they wanted something yeah, for that's the right. little kids. Yeah, yeah. And as a five year old, when this movie came out, I had like the, the did um like a basically a kids book with like these great hand drawn illustrations. There were action figures. There were lunch boxes. I collected all the action figures except for the Kraken. He was too damn expensive and too hard to get your hands. I got to play with him at a friend's house one time, and and his arms would fall off when you turned him to stone and that sort of thing but <laughs> clash of the titans was was a big deal and so as a little kid i thought the owl was cool as shit when i watch it now it kind of is the jar jar binks but there's so much other stuff in there that i thoroughly enjoyed that I, I can forgive them for trying to have their own r2d2 in the movie yeah but ironically this film was the conceiving of this movie was before star wars apparently so where that sits with, with the idea of r2d2 i don't know but we we, we put it in that in that in that sort of time frame, but what I find funny about the 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 Clockwork Owl is it sounds like the Clangers, an old TV kids show we had in the seventies. 
just talks the same way and I can't handle it. Uh, yeah, yeah it, it, it's definitely annoying when it when it first flies in. Oh, and now I'm looking at my notes now. But since we're on this movie, uh, I couldn't remember it earlier. But the name for the original monster for the Kraken in the mythologies, Cetus or Cetus is C E T U S, which basically means whale. Which is yeah. Kraken obviously is is way cooler. Uh, but interesting also note about this movie, this was the first Harryhausen movie to be so scandalous and so hardcore that it earned a PG rating. Everything prior to that but was G or whatever the G equivalent was before the G rating was introduced. But yeah. when you watch this movie, you do see Andromeda's butt cheeks when she's getting in a bath. And early on, you see Perseus and his mother on the beach. You see his mother naked from behind as well. So there is some very... Um, family-friendly nudity that but for a ray harryhausen movie going pg was like going like hard x for like any other filmmaker <laughs> yeah oh oh yeah and it's funny because in europe clash the titans did better than Raiders of the lost ark wow can you believe that i mean when i heard this the other day i thought no way well so That's... much about it works and we got Lawrence olivier just chewing the scenery yeah maggie smith in there ursula Boats Med- Boats i think it's just Oh, awesome. Burgess Meredith, yeah, fantastic. Ursula Andrews has one line, but she's beautiful as Aphrodite. Yeah. Apparently, fuck somebody else and got pregnant. So somebody got so, somebody got born because because of this movie. Sadly, his sequel, Force of the Trojans, which was conceived but never realized, which he tried to make in the early '80s, but this he didn't intend for it to be his last movie. He did want to do a Clash of the Titans sequel, but man, as soon as I popped this sucker in, I watched it again when I was doing my um top 80s fantasy movies video recently on YouTube. Yeah. I love the score. I love the monsters. I love the actors. So any flaws that there are in execution or that have aged poorly, I can totally overlook them. And I can and I can overlook all the liberties to take with the original source material. It just it remains an incredibly satisfying experience. And when he whips out the Medusa's head and takes out the Kraken at the end, I get nothing but goosebumps up and down my arms. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean... Do you know what? When when I pop the uh, Blu-ray in to watch this, it starts off with the um, is it the remake we'll call it that came out? Oh, the one from like 2010 or 11 or whatever. Yeah, the, the, I just the skip, Liam Neeson release the Kraken. <laughs> I just skipped it. I I know you got Liam Neeson in there or whatever, but sorry, I I didn't want to watch it. It was so I didn't want to put my myself through it. I don't know. If, did you did you ever watch it and appreciate I, I, it? Or? I skipped both of the remakes, so or the remake <laughs> and its sequel. Uh, I just I, emotionally, I'm just I'm too attached to the original. Like I said, I was five and I saw it in the theater, and I just was completely utterly overwhelmed and was went went under its spell. Yeah, I, I I'm with you on that one. Okay, so we're going to stick to a couple of movies here. Anyway, you're probably going to guess them. I'm going to go to the Hydra in Jason the Argonauts. It's a good one. And I've just got it on my left as we're talking about it. And it's such a great scene that's put together here. Mixing the animation, or should I say the stop motion, with the live action. And even blending it into as much as that you've got the the the, uh, the tail with Jason being held from there. Next thing, you've got the shot where you have him as an animate, animated character as well. It's uh, it's wonderful to see. I mean, the Hydra was only three to four feet in real size. Yeah, it's a tiny little model that they're playing with. And what I like that the blood had glycerin in it to get it to shine. So when they took so what we do when they took the shot when when Jason goes to stab it underneath its belly, the the sword gets dropped and his fake sword, which will be the one that's animated, gets put in place of it, and you don't notice the difference. You can't see that sword being dropped. And it's just very well put together. 
and the effects i think the effects took a whole year to do for this movie. Well, you're animating seven fucking heads all at once. Just that scene. I mean, why? <laughs> That's like, how did you keep all those heads? He's like, I have no idea. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. it's just a blur form. He's probably like, why did we pick the Hydra? Why can't it just be a dragon with one head? Why did it we invite this? It would so much easier, wouldn't it? Yeah. But it, it looks, it just comes together so well. And just seeing now the where he, Jason's being held by his, his split tail. I mean, it's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah, so once again, because it was executed so well, and I agree, it is one of the coolest creatures that uh, Harryhausen ever created. I, w- I will forgive the fact that they should have used the Hydra in a Hercules movie because that was one of his famous labors where you obviously chop off the head of the Hydra and have to burn the neck to keep the two heads from growing in its place. But that yeah. would, I imagine even for Harry Harryhausen, he wouldn't have invited that much labor into his life by having him do a scene where Jason's chopping off the heads and two heads are growing in because that's obviously the whole point of the Hydra is that it just keeps growing more heads the more you chop off but one yeah. of the all-time great mythological monsters um, very it's a very short scene but it, I, I, some of these scenes i'd love to see them longer but again it, it's time constraints and actually putting these together it's, it takes forever and say this this movie took a year to shoot special effects and also so we should, we should can, acknowledge that this movie comes at the end of nearly a decade of sword and sandal and mythological filmmaking especially over in italy where if you if anything was a hit they would make like an Italian ripoff, and if that Italian ripoff was a hit, then you'd have a billion spinoffs and unofficial sequels, etc. But obviously, the sword and sandal genre reached its zenith in the 50s. By the 60s, it was starting to get a little bit played out, and you're seeing fewer and fewer of them. But I think when it comes to that style of sword and sandal movie, Jason and the Argonauts definitely is one of the strongest that was ever created on that front. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so sticking on that same same movie number three i've got talos i mean bronze fucking he's killer (laughs) he's killer isn't he one of the titans he might be he's big enough didn't jason say something about talos This must be where Hephaestus molded the statues of the gods. Yes, and set them up for all the world to see. This has been the first, I think it's the first actually Dynamation character in the movie. And when you see Hercules and uh, the other guy, they, they came out after looking at all the treasures that are sitting inside this this. Yeah, they've um, been told plinth. to take only food and water from this island. And of course, Hercules and his buddy are like, fuck that. We're going to look for animals and women and treasure. And they just go on a rampage of grabbing loot. It's a, it's a huge pearl in one hand. And then looks like a, a knitting needle that's made of gold in the other, which Hercules has. 
I love how Hercules looks like somebody they just like found it like at a pub who likes to like pick up kegs of beer. Like in the fifties, whenever somebody played Hercules, they'd get the Steve Reeves type, somebody with glistening sculpted muscles. But this guy, he's a little older, a little more rugged, and but he kind of I, I like this this interpretation of the character of Hercules. And of course, he's so overwhelmed with loss when they when they lose their friend who gets crushed by Talos. He, yeah. he refuses to leave the island, which is straight from the myth. He goes on a rampage when his buddy's missing. And that's it. And it- what I like about this as well, what I think Harry Harrison agreed with, is that none of these, uh, none of the crew are, are beefy characters. Like if, if you'd have made this film today, they'd all look like Arnold Schwarzenegger, wouldn't they? They'd, they'd all be Dwayne Johnson, sl- yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but they were just down and out locals. So they look and- like guys who like sports, who enjoy a nice like. Because obviously, when they're assembling the Argonauts, they had this great thing where they put on a series of games where it's javelin and discus. That's right. And you're, yeah. just, you're getting the best of the best when it comes to athletes and strategists and so on and so forth. And obviously, the clever guy who becomes Hercules's buddy when they're yeah. competing with the discus, Hercules throws a discus, hits an island, but his buddy just skips it across the water in order to uh, to defeat him. So that's all that stuff is so true to the spirit of the original mythology but talos he's so big and so beautiful and so just it's inc- i love watching these like bronze statues in action and even though he's a bronze statue they yeah. give the, the the statue so much personality especially when they find his weakness and he's kind of clawing at his throat almost like he's gasping for air they, they imbue him with so much personality well i like that they gave talos this jerky motion to give it feel like a statue and when the movie was reviewed they were mocking harryhausen for the character being being jerky but the idea was because he was a, a bronze statue he's not going to have this fluid movement that anyone else would have Do yeah, you know he's what not I mean? going to be the hydra yeah like when they because he, he's like in a kneeling position and as he comes to life they're hearing sounds and his head just kind of comes around and looks over to hercules but as he comes to life it's so fucking cool but my favorite yeah. my favorite shot of any harryhausen film ever is of talos uh, straddling that divide over the water. He's got a, a, one foot on land on either side yeah. and reaches down and grabs the boat. It's such a beautifully composed shot and you really get a sense of the scale of this creature. I think that's one, one of the high watermarks of his entire career. Yeah, yeah. And I've actually remember- got, him, I've got him tied as my number one. My, my two favorite Harryhausen creations are the Medusa and this. So yeah, for uh, me, okay, this, yeah, we, we are, this is like the zenith of Harryhausen's uh, creative oh, powers. Now, do you remember when, when Talos went on a rampage and every, all the crew were running back to the boat? Mm-hmm. And one character, you see there's one guy that trips and he's on his own trying to make his way back to the boat and just about makes it. And do you know who that was? I do not. That was, that was Charles Sneer. Oh, that's a producer. Very nice. Because the guy that was supposed to play that role didn't turn up for the shot. So Charles said, well, I'll do it myself. I think that's just classic. Absolutely funny. Yeah, sadly, Harry Housen never got to uh, make a sequel to this. But I would have... I, I mean, I, I, well, I love the Sinbad movies, and the only reason I have any knowledge of Sinbad whatsoever is because of his three movies. I much would have preferred if he had made like five Greek mythology movies. If he had managed to do like Theseus, Hercules, Jason and the Argonauts, like just all the major Greek heroes, <coughs> God damn, it would have been so cool. Imagine if it just he just lined up five movies in a row and made like a Harryhausen Greek mythology shared universe. It would have been one of the coolest uh. things ever. But you have so many cool ingredients. I love like the fact that Honor Blackman. But you know, Pussy Galore herself from Goldfinger shows <laughs> yeah. up as Hera, 
And usually in mythology, Hera is depicted as kind of jealous and vindictive, and she's always pissed off because Zeus is always running down to Earth, screwing some mortal woman, and giving and she's give gives birth to all these uh, heroes like Hercules. So Hera very much is a villain in the story of Hercules, always trying to kill him. But yeah. here, Hera is a <laughs> benevolent figure and always giving Jason advice. And I love the way they animate the figurehead of, the, of her on the ship. And yes, how, that's how very her clever, eyes move and she's talking to him. She's so fucking cool in this. Yeah. it's Going back quickly to, just for a minute, to Talos. You know when they get to the Achilles heel? Mm-hmm. And they, obviously, what they did, they had to have a life-size foot for the scene. But when they did the animation later for that, where you got the fluid coming out of the heel, that was cellophane on a disc going around in circles with light shining on it. <laughs> Which... Now I look at it now, I can see it, but it's just so well put together. Obviously, the steam was added added later, maybe, but um, yes, yeah, it's, it's just one of my favourite bronze He-Man style characters, or whatever you want to call him. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's I mean, when you think about it, between the Hydra, the skeletons, and Talos, this is kind of the holy grail of uh, of Harry housing creations. But I would argue that I, the Tiger, and Clash of the Titans also have their fair share of extraordinary creations all in one. Whereas in the fifties, you would just have like the Beast. You would have the creature from Twenty Million Miles to Earth, or the, the creature from It Came Beneath the Sea. So you only had really one monster to focus on. But with yeah. these mythological movies, it really gave him a chance to like. It's almost like he's a kid surrounded by his action figures, just having fun, <laughs> and <laughs> and we're and we're invited to watch him play for a while. I mean, yeah. When you go back to Ida Tiger, and you had that. Uh, I can't remember the character with the 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 golden ball with the two horns. Minotaur. And he, yeah, he was he was doing the wreck, getting the boat. I mean, he was like a mini version of Talos. I thought maybe absolutely. You know? yeah. Once again, that's like a, a second pass on, on on a familiar concept, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, number two, I've got Medusa. So uh, I, I can't I can't argue with that. I, I fucking love Medusa. So you're going to probably guess number one, but we'll wait till we get to that. To that. Uh, Medusa had a bit of a hard time, to be honest. Now, with the censors in the US. Because she's naked. She has no clothes this on. Is, this was the question. Because she was basically naked and you could see her breasts and her nipples, the censors wanted to crop her upper body. Now, I don't know how much of that ha- actually happened at the time of this happening. In role reverse, we had the censorship for the UK where they were more concerned about the violence. So, spoilers here if you have not seen the film. Now, originally he wanted to have a shield thrown like a frisbee to uh, have the effect to take his take his head off, mm-hmm. but instead they had to go for the sword instead. But I find that very interesting that two different cultures across the water have two different style of censorships regarding the same piece of film. And it's all it's I mean, while it's incredible, I think like I mentioned before, I think it's one of the most effective things that Harry Housen ever did because there's so much atmosphere in this room. You have statues all around and she's got mm. that wicked bow and arrow. So even when you're not looking at her, she's still got a fucking bow and arrow that she's shooting people on the back with or shooting their shields so she can get a better look yeah. at them. And she's got this great rattlesnake tail, which in terms of the soundtrack and the sound effects gives you so much more atmosphere because it just gives you this sense of menace. But I think my favorite bit by far is when they first go in there and it's so dark, you can't see anything, and how she drags herself into frame. She doesn't slither in upright like a cobra. She pulls herself along the ground on her forearms, and it just makes her seem like so 
like crippled and dangerous all at once. It's one of my favorite moments in just special effects fantasy history. And you see those eyes go green when he's holding when he's holding up the head there. I think that's just oh. And apparently her eyes are just two eyes that Harryhausen like plucked out of some random dolls. Like oh, those kind of look like what I'm looking for. <laughs> just pop, popped them out and you look at them you can kind of see what he's talking about they look like any eyes that you could just find on any doll carried by a little girl probably annabelle more than likely you never know <laughs> sort of and, and also with the, her hair i can't remember i think it's either 10 or a dozen snakes in her hair all moving simultaneously i mean hydra was a pain in the ass with seven heads but medusa and her fucking snakes there's there's, there's so much going on between the tail the bow and arrow the vision and the snakes it's, there's just so much for the, to like to stimulate the senses all at once, and yeah, this wonderfully and atmospheric scene. As a little five year old in the theater, I was completely, utterly hypnotized, fascinated. I couldn't believe how cool the scene was. Did it frighten you at all as a child? Oh, big time! I, I was, I, I was. As a little kid, there there are a lot of things that I was freaked out about that you, you don't have to really worry about in nature, like quicksand. I thought for some reason that like, quicksand was like. Which is lurking around every corner because for whatever reason in the early '80s, <laughs> movies like Beastmaster and Flash Gordon, all these movies had like a quicksand sequence. And here I am, 43 years old. I've never seen quicksand. <laughs> it's a little no, but it's always, it's always noticed that you'd, you'd find it in the states somewhere, like in Blazing Saddles, when they're on the yeah, when quicksand. they're on the tram bit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'd have to pull you out, but no. Um, it is a fantastic. It's a fantastic piece of um, piece of. And it holds up. It history. holds up super well. I mean, I, I just watched it a couple of days ago, and uh, I, I, f- I fell into it all over again. Okay, so let's talk for number one. Let's talk skeletons. I mean, and- people people love and adore this scene. It's it's definitely. I mean, for James Cameron, it kind of it's like it helped him create his most famous creation. It did, yeah. And so, if we go back to the seventh voyage of Sinbad with the first skeleton. That got cut in the UK for being too menacing. Interesting. And it later came in. I don't know what, what, at what point, but listening, actually listening to the um, commentary on Jason of the Argonauts, which I was doing earlier today, um, they were chatting about saying that, you know, how that came about. But it's, again, you know, as I say, censorship between here and the US is bizarre at the best of times. But, uh, but obviously the other problem would have been if they would have loved to have had like rotting flesh on the on the skeletons, but that again would have been too nasty and too terrifying. So they have to be clean cut. But uh, there's quite a lot involved in putting this together, and we had four months to put the whole scene together, two weeks to shoot the actors doing the shadow boxing, um, and as you said prior earlier today, thirteen to fifteen frames a day working on the skeletons as well. It's <clears throat> Anytime I post a, a clip from Jason and the Argonauts at the end, I mean, you have this evil wizard. He plants the teeth of the Hydra in the ground, and those teeth they they, they spring from the ground as uh, as these skeletons. People are just enthralled by this scene. It's a it's a perfect climax to the movie. There's so much going on. The skeletons are just fucking people up, killing people left and right. They they look gorgeous, and the, yeah. uh, and for me, the closer in you get, the better they look. Sometimes special effects, when you get in too close, you kind of say, oh, that looks a little fake. They look incredible up close, but when it comes to choreography, and as I mentioned before, one of the most difficult things is to have one of these creatures go into the air because the animation with the strings is way more difficult they, than keeping it on the to, ground. But in the fight scene, they're jumping it. all over the place. Yeah, they had, them, had one of them on wires to jump over. They could have actually walked around or something like that, but they did. They jumped, He had him jumping over the top, and uh, pretty effective. Also, the uh, Ray Harryhausen originally wanted to have this at, 
in, in, in night time. But the censorship said no. They submitted the script as they too, did. Too spooky. Yeah. <laughs> it's so, <laughs> too spooky. They don't like it. I don't, what is it with these people? I don't know. It's crazy. So, yeah, so they actually had to shoot this in daylight. It, it holds up pretty goddamn well. I mean, it's, it's definitely one of the best things. For some reason, because there's so many of them, I don't rank it as highly as the individual creations, but this movie's got so many extraordinary sequences. And one, one scene we haven't even mentioned is when they're trying to go through this area where you have like these rocks crashing down on ships, and you have yeah. Poseidon rising from the water, and it's just a it's just an actor holding the clashing rocks, yeah, yeah, but holding back the uh, the rocks so that the ship can go through. It just has this sense of scale and grandeur, and just this mythic flavor. Everything about this movie pretty much works well i love the acting i love the costumes i love the villains I, I, I love everything about it if i was going to show a little kid any movie based on greek mythology i can't imagine a better place to start than this one oh, i mean i love the way with the music and the way he starts to throw the the hydra's teeth on the floor yeah and it's just the great bernard herman just just knocking things out it of the is park. and what was really cool was when you see them come out of the ground that was animated cork. Oh, interesting. For that, and now if you look at it, you can you can probably record see it. It was cork, but it just looks so brilliant anyway. Well, a but, big surprise to me that in all your top ten, twenty million miles to Earth did not make the cut. So you're you're going to have to justify leaving the great Emer out of your list. The airship XY twenty one, which crashed into the Mediterranean Sea on the eleventh was a single-stage, astral-propelled rocket launched 13 months ago from a site within the United States. The rocket, with its complement of 17 men, had landed on the planet Venus. Venus? The planet Venus? Some of you may also have heard the story of a monster now confined here in Rome's zoo. That beast is from Venus. Careful those electric cables! Well, I'm going to, I'm going to. I'm going to pull him in for a little bit, shall I say? Now, when you look at the the sort, when you look at the shields on the skeletons, oh, it's, it's all you, like all Harryhausen creations. It is, yeah, and yeah. you can see that he is there, and so is uh, I think is the octopus from from the um, one of the early ones as well. Yeah, it came from beneath the sea. I did. I must admit, I did get a chance to to, to check out that movie. I, I have seen First Men in the Moon. I think it was called some years ago. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of First Men in the Moon because once again, we get we, we get into that weird wholesome territory where it feels so much like that li- that that abominable live action Disney flavor where you, like your grandmother's looking out after you for the afternoon and she makes you watch some channel you've never heard of that only that only plays. Oh, we have that. We have one that called the Hallmark Channel. Which yeah, is just it's, it's like that, that's what it kind of feels like a bit too much. For, for my taste, but it did at least give him a chance to do an H.G. Wells story, which was very important to him. So I'm thrilled he got a chance to do it. But with 20 million miles to Earth, 
you have a situation where a ship's coming back from Venus. Venus is being explored right. for the first yeah. time, and they bring back this sample, and it cra- the ship crashes in Italy because Ray Harryhausen wanted to go on vacation in Italy, so they shot this movie in Italy. <laughs> Why not? Yeah, and this, this little creature is the only thing that survive, and it gets on the loose, and it just keeps getting bigger, 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 bigger. But there's a scene in there which I think is as good as the Medusa scene in Clash of the Titans where they're in a barn and like a dog tries to attack it for a At this point, the Emer, for whatever reason, they never call it the Emer in the movie, but it's, that's the way all the fans describe it. But a dog fights it first, then a couple of farmers, but you have uh, people like fighting with pitchforks. But because it's still only humanoid sized, people can kind of fight with it one on one. Whereas later on, it's like mm. the size of a building and knocking things over. But there's yes. this scene where it's coming toward the frame, coming toward the camera, kind of like lashing and clawing. And it's so nightmarish. And the lighting is so beautiful. When it comes to black and white stop motion, I think this might be Harryhausen's finest moment. Do you think black and white actually hides a lot of things that, that may in color you don't really want to need to see that's why it works so well i don't i, I don't know because it's a weird thing where I, I love both but it's just a different flavor it's like sometimes i'm in the mood for a hot dog and sometimes i'm in the mood for a cheeseburger and i just wanted when i which, whichever one i'm eating i just wanted to be done as well as possible but i love the stunning glorious black and white and this creature just looks so fucking beautiful in it oh and there's a scene where it fights a fucking elephant which is killer as well. Yeah, so the Emer versus an elephant is one of the all-time great sequences. But like I said, if you look at its face and its body, if you just imagine an extra set of arms, it is mm. the Kraken. And it, just, it would take him 20, 24 years to come back around to revisiting that creation. But I definitely think he belongs in the mix as one of the all-time greats. But also, yeah. I do have to give a shout-out to some of the creatures in uh, Sinbad and the can, Eye of the Tiger. I was going to say, can we talk about that? Because... First of all, can we just talk about Jane Seymour because she was heavenly in that movie. I mean, there's a there's a chance it might be the first time I've ever seen something resembling kind of sort of nudity in a movie. I, the stripes, yes, stripes was early for me, like the mud wrestling scene with John Candy. I yep. don't know which I saw first. It's hard to remember the sequence of events like 1981, 1982, like when and how I saw things. But Jane Seymour. They go, they go skinny dipping, and it's very chaste. It's very innocent. But the, the troglodyte comes up over the hill, and she turns around and screams, and you get a little hint of Jane Seymour's nipple, and she's got that beautiful long hair going all the way down to her butt. But Jane yeah. Seymour, vision of love, loveliness from start to finish in this. Yeah, and I'd like to say Patrick Troughton had a double because he obviously was in Chase of the Argonauts and in Eye of the Tiger. Oh, interesting. So, wait, wait, so which, uh, which character is he in Eye of the Tiger? He was the father of the, the daughter with the blonde hair when they oh, were... Oh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. The, 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 essentially like the wizard or the sage or the scientist. Like yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. the wise man who ends <laughs> up uh, kind of matching wits with this evil sorceress. As, as a little kid, the villain in this, her way of speaking... I found it so terrifying, and the fact that like she had all these spells where she could turn into seagulls, or that like creating giant bees, or making demons pop. Those three demons that pop out of the fire with those giant like big yeah, they've got those big eyes, haven't they? They remind me a little bit of the skeletons from Jason of the Argonauts, but these have a slightly more demonic appearance. But those Mm. three creatures absolutely terrified me. But watching the saber-toothed tiger imbued by the spirit of the sorceress go up against the troglodyte at the end was so fucking cool. And I felt so sad when the troglodyte ended up getting killed trying to save everybody's life. And I yeah. just, I felt so much emotion. And as a, since I was so tiny, it never even occurred to me that like stop motion was unusual looking or, or that it wasn't live action. I completely believed the illusion. Yes, yes. It, when I look, think back to it now, even though... Uh, 
I have got it to watch. I haven't had a chance, but um, I've got big fond memories of seeing that in the cinema, and I was enthralled by it. And I think I, I'd love to say with Tooth Tiger in it as well. And especially the way it dies when it dies and Simba kills it, its legs go and kind of vibrate really, really quickly. It's yeah, yeah. so eerie looking with seeing its legs shaking like that. But it's just, just such a great, just such a great touch. What do you think of the Simbad? Because obviously we had. Patrick Wayne playing Sinbad in this one. Yeah. Never, I remember watching The Searchers in college, and Patrick Wayne as a young man shows up, and I kept saying to myself, why does his voice sound so familiar? Who is this? Who the fuck is that? And of course, this was before IMDb even existed. I don't think yeah. I, I didn't even have the internet in my room. So I kept kind of scratching my head, and then one day, I just it suddenly just popped into my head, that's Sinbad, holy shit, because his voice was just so familiar. It's one of the things where today, of course, people would say, "Oh, you're you're whitewashing Sinbad. You should get a higher, you know, an Arab actor, or a Rami Malek, or whomever." But in mm. 1977, people didn't give a fuck, and <laughs> they, they wanted to hire John Wayne's son to play Sinbad. They hired John Wayne's son, and I think he does just fine under the circumstances. I, I was watching. I, I was watching some of it when I was flicking through. I was thinking, God, he looks like Stephen Armell, who plays Arrow in the CW TV show. Yeah, I guess they got some of that, that, that kind of square-jawed masculinity. Yeah, and he's got he's got that 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 sort of rough look around his chin and, and as well with the unshaven look. I was sort of double taking for a minute. Uh, also, I'd like to give a shout out to Tom Baker in the other Sinbad movie, which uh, Seventh Voyage or Golden Voyage? Uh, I think it was I think it was Golden Voyage because if it wasn't for him doing that, he wouldn't have got the Doctor Who that he got. With the BBC. Gotcha. Yeah, there are a lot of uh, Doctor Who alums in the Ray Harryhausen movies that uh, pop up beginning and again. Uh, but one thing I forgot to mention is that with Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, when it was made at $3.5 million, that was, at to date, Ray Harryhausen's biggest budget he'd ever worked with. From there to Clash of the Titans, he had a massive <clears throat> jump. But if you want to see Ray Harryhausen with a lot of money at his disposal, Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger is definitely one of those. And he spent a year and a half doing the animation all from his home studio and also for, yeah. for the Chewbacca fans out there the stand-in for Minotaur on the set none other than Peter Mayhew himself it was and I, I actually I, I, my jaw dropped when I was listening to that on the, on the documentary I think we, we probably got to give them a shout um, Arrow did a fine job with that documentary I, I loved it yeah I, I, I tossed in a couple of days ago and I just fell into it they, just, they did such a brilliant job of capturing they talk about every single movie that he made including his uh, his shorts and so on and so forth and just beginning the testimonials from all those filmmakers and when you hear James Cameron talking about how creating the the, the, the metal skeleton for the first Terminator movie and that was the most loving affectionate form of praise and like imitation is the highest form of flattery but he freely admits that without those skeletons from Jason and the Argonauts there is no Terminator yeah and I think I think I must admit John Landis had a lot of love as well well he's just a well-known monster buff and John Landis he can talk at length about movies and ad nauseum as long as there's a giant monster to be discussed and like whether it's a good movie with a bad monster or uh or a bad movie with a good monster he doesn't he just loves giant monster movies so harry harry Housen obviously is one of his idols and he visited him early on he said he sat around a studio for hours and they got like two or three frames shot <laughs> he was blown yeah. how time consuming it was there's a i mean i think on the on the Blu-ray for Jason Argonaut, I think there's, there's a little mini documentary with him on that as well. Oh, I didn't because so, I, I just watched, I just streamed it, so I haven't had a chance to uh, check out the, uh, the the Blu-ray. Yeah, it's it's well worth picking up. There's some some fun little extras, and there's also a little mini documentary where Leonard Nimoy is doing the background for it. 
as well. Now, one thing we haven't mentioned at all is just how many opportunities he had to play with dinosaurs. And for some reason, these are his least popular. But we have to mention that in the in the 60s, Harryhausen cooled off a bit where his fantasy movies weren't striking a chord the same way sci-fi <clears throat> flicks had in the 50s. Mm. And he suddenly found himself, Columbia canceled his contract. Or it didn't cancel it, he let his contract expire. And he found himself a free agent. So Hammer Films scooped him up and put him to work on One Million Years BC. I know, it's it's funny. It, it's it's something that needs to be mentioned, even more for Raquel Welsh, probably. Well, it's like Golden Voyage of Sinbad with Carol Monroe and Sinbad in the Eye of the Tiger with Jane Seymour. Sometimes it's, just having a really sensationally hot girl in there is the best special effect of all. So Raquel Welsh... She hasn't got an ounce of dirt in her face in the whole movie where everyone else Everyone is else grind. is like a total savage. Well, actually, well, I guess the first time we see her, it's all these beautiful girls like spearfishing. Like, Whoa, where have these girls been hiding? But <laughs> Raquel <laughs> Welch is just awe-inspiring. Yeah, and I, as you say... I did. I could have put dinosaurs in the list as a, as a as something, but yeah, he wanted to get away from that. That was the way they started off, obviously, and it, it worked well. But obviously, it was I think the change of the era and everything else that dinosaurs to sci-fi and that that complete crossover. I think I think everyone was sick of seeing monster movies. Well, it's I think funny that, that was Don it. Chaffee who did Jason and the Argonauts also directed this, and I think Jason and the Argonauts is a vastly superior movie. It's, it just, I mean, I, as you said, I'd love to see if someone could do a sequel in the same way. And I just, it's a film I never get bored of. Well, well uh, One Million Years BC, the, like, the, weird, the only things I really like about it, you have a great little moment which pops up in Clockwork Orange when he's having this vision of all these different ways of killing people. Uh, when he comes home at the end of his first night, there's a little shot <clears> from One Million Years BC. And as a pop culture touchstone, the fur bikini is one of the most popular and doing during relics of the 1960s. So I feel like One Million Years BC is a, a very crucial like role to play in pop culture history. This is a movie. I find it really slow. There's no dialogue. Some people are kind of grunting and growling. I yeah. find it really boring. But obviously, I will always show up to watch some of Harry Housen's special effects, and I will always show up to watch Raquel Welch in action. But then we also have The Valley of Gwangi from 1969, which I never even Grangie, heard of. Gwangi, yes. Oh, Grangi, yeah. And it's... But once it's basically um, like Western dinosaurs. Yeah, it's cowboys versus dinosaurs, which you would think would be more popular because they are good at roping cattle and they're good at roping bulls. So it just turns out that they're also really good at roping like T Rexes. And those scenes are delirious fun. But I feel like the movie doesn't quite come together nearly as well as some <clears throat> of his uh, more mythological movies from this period. Yeah, I think it was released too late. If that was released a few years earlier when the dinosaurs and the creatures were more still favoritism with the, with the audience, it would have probably, it probably would have done very well, but it, it I think it failed for the point of where it was and where it sat, unfortunately. Well, it was a project that was originally generated by Willis O'Brien and it was his way of kind of paying tribute to his, his teacher <clears throat> and his idol. And it, it's been like basically floating around since the early forties, but I watched it and I enjoyed a few sequences, just, just the, the novelty of watching cowpunchers going up against dinosaurs. I mean, it's like when people do movies like Cowboys versus Aliens and things like that. It just, as a story, didn't quite work for me. So it was, I guess I was, I was happy to see it, but I would not remotely include it in my, uh, in my top 10. But we also haven't mentioned some of his unrealized projects. And there were a million projects that he wanted to bring to the screen. But some of the biggest ones that would have been cool 
Sinbad and the Seven Wonders of the World. Sinbad goes to Mars. We mentioned before uh, Force of the Trojans, which is going to be a sequel to Clash of the Titans. Uh, yeah. Tarzan and the Ant-Man could have been killer, but he really struggled to get the rights to the Tarzan franchise in the mm. uh, early 60s. But yeah, the big one for me that he didn't, that is a shame that we didn't get to see is his War of the Worlds. I feel like just based on the test that he did, it's so beautiful and so imaginative. If he and Orson Welles had gotten together due to a movie version of War of the Worlds in the early 50s, it could have changed Orson Welles, the trajectory of his whole career, because he was off in Europe desperately trying to piece together his, his Othello movie. But if he'd taken a break to do a War of the Worlds movie, it might have made him a bankable director for the rest of the decade. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, you can't really see my War of the Worlds t-shirt that I'm wearing at the moment. So. No, sir. <laughs> it's, War of the Worlds, to me, has got is a, that, again, something that's close to my heart. And I don't mind the this, this, this 60s sci-fi movie was okay. The Tom Cruise movie was a, an abomination, really. But I would love to have seen another take on it from his point of view. In the late 1800s, so many brilliant fantasy and sci-fi books coming out of the UK, and obviously H.G. Wells is one of the, the great giants of that period. I mean, he, what he knew in his head, he should have known about at the time of, that he was writing those stories. I don't know how, he, how he, it pops into his head, those, those ideas. He was, just, he was a visionary. Uh, he was a genuine yeah, visionary. Island of Dr. Moreau, Time Machine, just so many extraordinary stories. The Time Machine I have, I have in my, my collection, and again, that's another favourite of mine with Rod Taylor. <clears throat> and Yvette, I can never pronounce her surname, but she's lovely. It's, yeah, I just love those movies. They, they're really great, really good. Well, any final thoughts on Harryhausen's legacy, how he's influenced people, your favorite films? I feel like we've touched upon just about just about everything. There are a few little things like in the early 2000s, like The Tortoise and the Hare, where some people came around and helped him finish a short that he had never finished back in the 50s. But I think we have at least addressed or mentioned just about everything? everything that he was involved in so that people who are curious can work their way through. But my recommendation is just to watch all of it because... Oh, God, yeah. I mean, oh, granted, maybe not the Gulliver one. <laughs> no, I, I, do you know what? Watch Land of Giants instead. Will do. <laughs> you probably get more fun out of it. I mean, I think if anyone wants to, to dive into Harry Harryhausen, they should check out the um, Foundation which do a lot of they've done a lot of restoration work over the years they've got a lot of the models are still around today they've got a facebook page they give you a lot of information and and it's also they do a, do a podcast as well so that's well worth a listen to as well i think yeah he's i mean i, I mean we all have to go at the end and he passed away what age of 92 and when you saw that party that they got, they held from, is it 90th birthday party? Yes, it's 90th birthday party, and it's a who's who of a, the best living filmmakers that, that, oh, are, all, that are all there in so, attendance. That was so endearing as well. I just, oh, man, it was amazing. Yeah, when you but turn yeah. 90 and like you have like Peter Jackson and Steven Spielberg and all those people showing up who want to tip the hat and bend the knee, clearly you've you've made your mark. Absolutely, yeah. <clears throat> it's always worth just, just going into that movie database, go look at the back catalog, see which ones you can pick out and just go through them all. Obviously, Jason the Argonauts is really top of the tree for me. Clash of Titans comes a little second on that. But it's just the mythology and everything else, it's just fantastic. From when I, when I, mean, I always, I'm, I'm guilty of this, where when it comes to celebrating film history, I'm always celebrating the great directors. But there are certain composers and certain writers and certain production designers where they do achieve that brand name recognition whether it's like ken adams as a production designer or mm. uh or uh bernard herman as a composer or ennio morricone 
And certain writers, like Robert Town, obviously is very famous, or Ben Hecht, or there's certain <clears> writers that, or Ernest Lehman, like there's certain figures who aren't directors who become really famous. But I feel like it's always the stars and the directors that get most of the of the kind of all the the accolades. But yeah. when it comes to special effects, Ray Harryhausen, he's kind of the only guy that really has achieved that legendary status where when you hear his name, a certain type of storytelling immediately jumps into your mind. So I'm just, uh, I'm blown away by what he was able to accomplish. He's, he's one of the, one of the giants. I'm glad we're, I'm glad we was able to touch on hopefully everything that he's ever done. And for people that may not know him as much or, 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 or may have heard of a movie, but didn't realize who, who put them together. Um, hopefully they'll go forward and go through those titles. Beautiful. Well, you and I are going to actually get to meet in the flesh in just a few weeks' time. You're coming to New York, and hopefully we can get a good dinner together with some of the people you know from Wrong Real here in the city. But if people want to find you online to talk about music or video games or special effects, whatever, what's the best place to find your show, and what's the best place to find you on social media? So social media, um, Twitter at Steve007 is the best place to find me for anything, to be honest with you. Um, we've got at Pop Culture Gamers as well on Twitter as well, where you can hit up there for, for the podcast that we do, which I've got to start the notes for tomorrow night's show yet. <laughs> That's going to keep me busy. So we chat there about games, movies, TVs, all sorts of stuff, um, music as well. Beautiful. Well, so, yeah, but I'm, I'm always more vibrant on Twitter than anywhere else. It's a, a great meet place to, to chat about all sorts. Hell yeah. Well, I can't wait to hang in the flesh and tilt back a few mm. glasses of whiskey. That's going to be a ton of fun. And I'll try not to uh, kill your wife with boredom by talking exclusively about movies, etc. No, she, do you know what? After, after her meeting John Carpenter and watching me chat to these people when we went, went to this concert, like she, she knows what I'm like. She, she's all right. Fair enough. Excellent. Well, we hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Definitely hunt down some Ray Harryhausen movies. You can thank me later, but if you want to talk to us online, you can find me on Twitter at Colbrax, and please remember to subscribe to the podcast, leave a rating and review, all that good stuff. And if you want some more content in the interim, hunt down my YouTube channel, Geekin' with James Hancock, where I'm always reviewing new flicks, new shows, all that good stuff. But can't thank you for listening. Really appreciate it. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.